Hello and welcome to Mentality, where we spill the tea on mental health. Today we are sitting with Tommy. I am your co-host, Zach. I'm Camera, And yes, we have Tom McLaughlin, my mentor from Chapman, who is everything that you can think of that starts with an M. He is a mime, magician, musician of an amazing rock and roll band that we're going to get into called The Slavs, and also a movie maker. Of and horror. mentally deranged. <laughs> Perfect for our episode. Perfect. Mentality. It works great. We're going to get some great stuff spilling tea on the psyche today, so I'm really excited to talk with Tom, and we're going to go into a lot of topics. Mainly, one of the things is ageism, how Tom is achieving his dreams right now, and more than I think a lot of people my age, so I'm really impressed. <laughs> yeah, I actually had no idea you were a magician, so I'm really excited to get into that. First off, I want to go over the tea that we're drinking. The tea is actually a brand new one that was just released. It is Sweater Weather, and this one has uh, pumpkin spice. <laughs> Good title. Yeah. yeah, it has pumpkin spice, star anise, and rooibos. So this is a perfect one for the fall weather. It's October, so we'll uh, so it's it's perfect for that. So the Halloween season's upon us. Halloween it's very seasons. good. I've already had a sip. Yeah, mine is Terrific. very hot. I can't even hold my cup. <laughs> All right, so let's just go ahead and jump right into this. I have to know. You mentioned that you're a magician. How did yeah. that start off? Well, I was literally born into it. My father was a magician and a fire eater. So, oh, wow. Yeah, this is sort of like a fun a, episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as uh, certain people say, you know, there's like freaks and freak shows that have, you know, deformities and they're freaks naturally. And then there's the people that saw, you know, swallow swords and eat fire and they're freaks by choice. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up with a dad that, you know, it's like, your dad's a fire eater. Yeah, but he's also a magician. But that was the thing that was so strange. And, um, I just kind of became his assistant as I grew up. I was the firstborn, so I would toddle along to some of the shows and you know stand there in the wings and love what happened to the audience when they saw magic, and then particularly when you blew fire, you know, fifteen foot flames from yeah. you know using I guess it was cleaning fluid that they, they used to the make whole that big explosion. Goes, Whoa. Yeah. yeah, and it you know it, it was one of those kind of strange childhoods. At the same time, he also came to Los Angeles to be a USC film student. Mm. So he graduated in 1949 and tried to you know took his. You know, like all of the great film students do, you take your equipment and you go out there and you try to find work. And, you know, there was so little you could do with 16 millimeter in those days other than small little independent things. So he ended up being like, did news, you know, go on these, you know, Channel 5, Channel 7, go out and shoot, you know, whatever might yeah. be happening and try to sell that footage, you know, and those are the days when you used to, you know, they used to say, uh, you know, on news breaks, you know, film at 11, because it took that long to process it, and you couldn't see it until 11 o'clock. So definitely not live television. No. <laughs> <laughs> not, not with that. I mean, you know, well, it was live, and certain things were live, but it was like you wouldn't actually get the visual to go with it mm -hmm. until 11 o'clock when they, you know, once they got the film done. I had this great love of movies because of that. You know, he just instilled that in me that, you know, it was special. And I grew up in Culver City, California, where I was about, I don't know, 50 feet from the MGM back lot, you know, and the Hal Roach back lot where they did Little Rascals and Oral and Hardy and all that. So 
I got my own little eight millimeter camera when I was about seven and yeah. would jump the fence with my friends on the weekend and we'd make these little movies. That's amazing. So it was magic, you know, was the way I paid for it. I'd do like the magic shows, birthday parties, whatnot. Yeah. And then with that money, I would buy, you know, eight millimeter film. Yeah. Because it was before Super 8 and make these little epics, which you had to send the film away and sometimes you got it back sometimes you didn't so i have a <laughs> well, lot guess of that film gone <laughs> yeah half done films out there um so it it, it was a, a very interesting childhood from that standpoint because yeah he, i literally kind of adopted his dreams you know what he wanted to do um in filmmaking and then of course you know kind of cloning the magician thing yeah did you have a preference in what type of magic you did? Was it kind of the, the big box ones, the ones where it's like you saw people in half, or was it more the sleight of hand ones, or the, um, like, uh, I know there's different kind of classes of... Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right, yeah. there is. Did and you have a preference? My, uh, well, my dad always, I mean, like, didn't literally beat it into me, but, I mean, say, you know, you've got to learn sleight of hand, and so I would practice up to a certain point, but I didn't have a lot of patience for that. I yeah. love the idea of producing a girl out of a box or, yeah. you know, <laughs> the disappearing acts and yeah, such. the bigger, bigger things. And of course I couldn't afford those. So I'd make them out of cardboard yeah. and then, you know, do my funky job of trying to paint them and make them look like something. Yeah. And then I would use his tricks, you know, that he had since the 1920s, you know, so I had some classical magic and some of it. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, have. that's basically as classic as that magic gets. That's, yeah. Yeah. That was, the that was the big period. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he literally saw Houdini the night before he died in oh. Detroit so he saw the second to last show and um, he had did, all did these... he die though I think he's still alive <laughs> he, no yeah it's yeah. all a question of you know get a Ouija board and find out exactly uh, I, actually fun fact I don't even think Cameron knows this um, back in high school, I paid for a lot of my stuff by doing magic too. That's part really? of the reason why I'm so fascinated by uh, that. I never did any of the the big tricks. I was yeah. always very much. I was kind of the opposite. I loved sleight of hand. Yeah. I was very much into card tricks. I, I loved sleight of hand. I loved walking up to people and staring at them in the face. I at the time I lived in Santa Clarita. I lived mm -hmm. in Valencia, kind of where Magic Mountain is. And I remember going to the mall there and standing outside of the AMC or the Johnny Rockets and just being like, "Hey, would you like to see a magic trick or mm -hmm. something like that?" And walking up to people and. <laughs> You know, I was I was okay. They were all kind of elementary sleight of hand tricks, especially since I was like, I don't know, 13, 14. Yeah. But, That's still pretty um, cool. But it, I, yeah. I really enjoyed it. It's a great thing to do to people because it's a surprise. It's yeah. like, uh, okay, you know, and you watch yeah. their face, try to figure it out. And, you know, I consider much more of an art form what you're mm -hmm. doing because, oh. you know, it's one thing to have something that kind of all you have to do is know where to put the trick and and do it a whole nother thing to practice sleight of hand magic is something that i i think is is beautiful just because we live in such a science world mm -hmm. where everything is so kind of cut and dry mm -hmm. a b c kind of things and magic is one of those things where for just a moment somebody is like whoa something that i i didn't think is possible just happened yeah. you know even if you think of a figure out the trick five seconds later or whatever, there's still that moment of surprise because you don't know what the surprise is going to be. Yeah. And then yeah. it happens and then you're blown away by it. And I yeah. think... Well, everyone wants to be taken away and have the illusion of their mind yeah. kind of blown a little bit because it, it makes you feel young. It makes you feel happy. It makes you feel curious. Mm -hmm. yeah. The key word on that is illusion, yeah. you know, because that's the thing. It's like if they go, that didn't really happen. It's And like Houdini used to say, you know, it was a trick. Just yeah. A very good one. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. And magicians are very 
much about keeping their secrets too because it drives people crazy. It's like I know that's a trick, but I just can't figure it out. Can't you figure know. it out. I remember growing up, there was uh, the masked magician. Mm -hmm. I don't know. If oh, that, yeah. yeah, that was a huge controversy. Oh, yeah. I think that was the early two thousands because he just gave up all of those tricks that I you know magicians are holding on to. Anyway, I could go on a, a diatribe <laughs> yeah. about mid magic forever. Um, yeah, it is a big. You know, part of my life, I have one room in my apartment that I call the parlor, and it's all these huge posters of Thurston and Dante and Blackstone and all. Why are we things. recording? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, because it's all my dad's, you know, heroes yeah. and what I've heard about, and plus I just, you know, since which we'll talk about later, the rock and roll band, I'm putting a lot of magic into it and yeah, illusion and stuff that. Normally, you don't do as a yeah. rockers, particularly, you know, if unless you have the wherewithal like Alice Cooper to be able to have the big stuff on the big stages. I'm working in yeah. dive bars and ev everything else and trying to, you know, pull off illusionary things, that's which is great cool. fun. Yeah. But the that's... challenge of the creativity is what makes it really impressive and really engaging right. to the dive bar kind of audience. Yeah. Did you ever sword swallow or do any fire? Um... I didn't. I, I could take a pack of matches in the old days and you have the little pack of matches yeah. and light that and put that in my mouth and extinguish it. Yeah. But I didn't get into the torches and things. My brother did. He followed in my dad's cool. footsteps yeah. for a while and, and did it. But I... You know, it it is. I mean, I don't think it surprises anybody. I mean, the trick is just being that brave to put a torch in your mouth and close your mouth on it, and it kills the oxygen. Yeah, and the thing goes out. Yeah. But you know, when they start doing things where they push a little of the lighter fluid onto your tongue, and then you have the flame there, and then you exchange from side, you know, things like that okay. look so great. But it's like I just couldn't see myself doing that for yeah. some reason. Some of those things are just terrifying to do <laughs> going on from magic to music we, yeah. we should probably talk about the next kind of, m the next m in <laughs> yeah. in the, the order McLaughlin, the, yes in McLaughlin is the music and this band this is one of the reasons we're doing this episode you started it when you were very young mm -hmm. when like 15 16 kind of 14 14 yeah, yeah. yeah you like you can tell the story but i i think it's really fascinating how it's was then and now it's even if for me, I think that you guys are just as, I wasn't there in the beginning, but... but we're much I, better than we were then. Yeah, so. that, I think that <laughs> that's the impressive it. thing of how you can achieve your dreams no matter when, and it's never too late to be the creative genius yeah. that you always could be. Well, so yeah, tell I try to be creative. Genius is, uh, I guess... <laughs> In the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Well, yeah. How did the band start out? When well, the, it, yeah. I mean, it, it actually segues very well from the magic stuff because I was doing magic. I was in love with the movies. I was making my own little movies. And then the Beatles hit. Oh, And wow. for every young guy, and we were all like 12, 13, 14 years old when, when they hit. And it was like, oh, my God. It was like, you know, world changing. Yeah, literally. Uh, that I mean, they yeah. changed the world. Yeah. It's, and uh, uh, and it's still that way. I mean, just a sidebar here. I went to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery last night, and they showed Yellow Submarine. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, they played the Beatles' Revolution and Helter Skelter to fireworks, like wow. some of the coolest fireworks you saw ever seen. And I looked around, and there was like I don't know three thousand people, some standing, some dancing, some just sitting there in awe. Yeah. And there was something about it; just felt like we were back in the '60s. There was this optimism. There was a sense of we know things are rough 
right now, mm -hmm. but you know, there's a positive revolution coming yeah. and you know, and it was just very cool to be a part of that. And I thought, once again, the Beatles are leading the way, at least yeah, in the, what it felt like last night. I think that was that was a big, beautiful thing about the Beatles anyway, was it always kind of felt like they were leading that charge of like, look, we can we can get through this kind yeah. of thing. I think we're kind of in, in need of, of something like the Beatles, you mm -hmm. know, in, in our generation. Uh -huh. Yeah, something. I don't know if a rock group could ever do it again like yeah. they did. Because it was also an image and many things, which is what got me into trouble, most of my friends, yeah. is that <laughs> we wanted to look like them. Why? Because girls screamed. Girls wanted to go out with you <laughs> because your hair was longer. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, I went through seven high schools as a result of it. So my parents wow. wanted to disown me. My dad couldn't understand. You know, he had a perfectly good mind. I'm mine. I haven't got there yet. Magic act. That's the next one. The next <laughs> Magic act. And, 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 and you love movies and things. Why this? Why this thing with the hair and stuff? And, you know, it was just embarrassing to him. It was a whole generation that just didn't get it. I went on a psychologist show, uh, Dr. Joyce Brothers. She had a show on ABC TV, and they yeah. had me come on and a couple <laughs> other guys with long hair to try yeah. to figure out what it represented. What does it mean? You know, oh it's actually some form of communism. I mean, it was like... It shook people up because yeah. it was, you know, we were talking peace, love, you know, mm -hmm. rock and roll and everything was okay. And it just was a complete swing to the left from everything that the 50s represented. Absolutely. And, well, you know, yeah, the 50s were so much about repression is kind of the, the word that I think yeah. of is everything wasn't better. great in the 50s. We just made it look like it was, yeah. you know, uh, I say we as in humanity because oh, yeah. I certainly yeah. wasn't there. But what's well, the war, too. I yeah. Mean, after World War yeah. Two, everybody was so shook up. Yeah. It's, we know, don't want to like, talk about any bad things. We yeah. just want everything we want to, to be have perfect. the dream. We want our social security. We want our little home for the you know ten thousand dollars because I think that's what my father bought his first house for. And I mean, loans, you know, but everything was sort of, if we're going to take care of the future for you. Everything's fine. And yeah. there was a sort of a belief that anything outside of that was dangerous. Yeah, you know. And, and uh, the 60s kind of just came in and just, and yeah. the Beatles too, just kind of came and it's like, no, everything's not amazing. Yep. And I don't think we should pretend it is, but I think we should be okay yeah. and, and be at peace with each other and, and things like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think you could have had the 60s without the 40s, yeah. you know. And, oh, yeah, and that, it, all, that it all makes sense when Absolutely. you start to kind of look at the overview of the whole thing. Yeah, I went into rock and roll, pure, I mean, pure and simply, I love the music. I loved researching where they got their music from, which was basically the black artists of the South. Yeah. You know, John Lee Hooker and, and Buddy Guy and all these guys that were laying down that music that in particular the Rolling Stones, you know, made their own and that brought it to a whole generation that never heard it before and it was like wow what you know what is this yeah so that coupled with the fact that we could play these different clubs on sunset strip and we were 14 15 16 years old we weren't that supposed to be really in there cool. <laughs> <laughs> but we were opening you ready for the doors yeah for wow. Iron butterfly for the animals uh i mean all the bands love all the big bands that were part of the sunset strip mm -hmm. the birds yeah. You know, and then acts that were coming in and nobody questioned our age or whatever. We were just an early garage band. I mean, because that's where we rehearsed in our parents' garage, which is where that term originally <laughs> yeah. came from. Yeah. Now it's garage like a band. particular sound. But yeah, I mean, we would play until somebody in the neighborhood called the police and they'd bang on the door and we'd lift up the door. And I guess it's know, over for tonight. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> How much trouble yeah. do we feel like getting in today? Yeah. So it was like whatever we did, we sort of had to fight 
for it a bit, you yeah. know, and school was very difficult. You know, I was in that, you know, vice principal's office a lot. You know, you didn't cut your hair. You just combed it back and flipped it up. And, you know, yeah. you know we did all these tricks trying to hide it. Hide so the, hide stay the in long school. hair. I actually, you said something that I, I think is very interesting is you said we had to fight for a lot of what we have. Mm-hmm. And I think... Our generation is interesting because I feel like in a certain way we don't, that we have kind of everything at our fingertips as far as, you know, we, we can click a button and have our podcast mm-hmm. on all of these websites and we can go in front of a camera and record it onto YouTube without very minimal, if not any overhead, yeah. you know, especially since everyone has a phone now mm-hmm. and the phone itself is you can do so much with the yeah. phone that you oh, couldn't yeah. otherwise do. And now it's, it's on your watch now and all of those things. So our generation has kind of everything at its fingertips, but what's interesting is everyone has it at their fingertips now. The and so it's, it's almost as if, yeah, we've been given everything, mm-hmm. but now everyone has everything. So you're almost kind of vying for, you know, as opposed to a few people, you know, a few acts really, you know, getting through it and, and working really hard and persistence to get there. It's almost like the persistence isn't necessarily needed. It's more you have to be completely different. You have to, you know, because you're I think you're it's trying still, to, I mean, for some people, they don't have to work, people. but some people... I think even in this kind of atmosphere of anyone can be famous, anyone can be anything, you still have to put your all into your hustle. You still have to work, if anything, double times as hard because, yeah, anyone can do it. And half the people who want to do it are kind of lazy and won't put in the full effort now that it's going to take to out-compete or out-do your own self to be noticed or to really get a message across over all the noise. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot more noise, and I, I think it's interesting that... There's still, despite the fact that one generation was given very little and succeeded and another generation was giving everything, you know, has, has been given basically everything, yeah. there's still kind of that human struggle of having to, to keep going. Yeah. And, yeah. And... Well, I feel, I mean, since I'm now a professor at, at Chapman University and yeah. talking constantly with students, because I'm always asking the questions that you just answered for me, which is that exactly, it's like... Is it a sense of entitlement? Is it a sense of, you know, what I call, you know, going to the Jewish delicatessen and you've got five pages of, of yeah. menu and yeah. you're going, there's too many choices. There's just Cheesecake choices. Factory is probably the best example yeah. I can think of. That's they have good... like 20 pages yeah. of food. And and just give me a, a featured list really yeah, at this yeah. point. What's a special today? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll just take it. I don't care. But it is. It's so incredibly simple because you're right. It's just at your fingertips. And I remember asking students the first, you know, few years it's like you know have you guys seen citizen kane no but it's on my queue i got i'll see it eventually I after mean, i uh, see my other 80 episodes exactly of, yeah you know and i've watched it become from the movies into you know cable shows and now even network shows are having to compete and all the all the stuff that you can get online i mean it's just overwhelming and when they talk about how many shows they keep up with i go how do you find the time yeah. and i guess it's multitasking i guess yeah. you're watching and you're doing something else and you know i i'm guessing so what does that mean at the end of the day i don't see it as a bad thing i see it as what's happening and it'll there'll be results of that just like there was results from you know my generation and you know what we sort of believed in and there's a i'm not the only guy sitting here living the peter pan syndrome you know there's a lot of us that are refusing to get off and get you know, let the next group of generation yeah. come it's like yeah. oh we're still creative we're still we're still doing it yeah, yeah. 
you know, and there's the band is a perfect example. You got all these guys in their mid to late 60s who were sitting there competing with 20 year olds, mm -hmm. you know, and basically get that audience because there's like, isn't it great? These guys are still doing it. And I'd go to raves with my son. I'd go to all these things because I just wanted to see what it's like now compared yeah. to, you know, when we had, mm -hmm. you know, the big concerts and festivals. What, and, is, what is the, you said you went to raves with your son and stuff. I'd love to hear kind of the differences that yeah. you see. Drugs, seen. the difference just, in drugs yeah. and ex, ex to see as yeah. opposed to LSD and yeah. you know you know there was a peacefulness that I found that a lot of these this generation has that you know we were a mix I mean there was the hyper kind of thing when people were obviously taking you know speed and things that amped them up and then the mellowness also because there was a lot of stuff with quaaludes and things where just people just wanted to chill and so it was a kind of a mixture the rave I found is that there was, you know, people that who were sitting around also very, very chill. And then the others would be on their feet on the dance floor, packed, you know, and just have their hands up and just kind of get into this groove. The music wasn't changing. Yeah. It was the same beats that went yes. boom, 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 boom yeah. and everybody would cheer. And there was colors and stuff like we didn't have, you know, in terms of our psychedelic shows. And I thought, this is amazing. They got lasers. They got all these. Yeah, right. I, I was totally entertained. Yeah, absolutely. Just don't even. I, I remember going to EDC three or four years ago, something like that, and just being blown away just by the the technical aspects of the whole mm -hmm. thing. I mean, you have dozens of rides around there, which are it's just crazy to think about anyway. And then like you're packed in like sardines, but yeah. everyone's jumping. Everyone has a whole bunch of energy. And then you have the fireworks show and you have this, this huge kind of stage that's hundreds of feet, you know, wide with moving animatronics and dancers yeah. and fire. And it's it, crazy. It's yeah. insane. And it's, I mean, it's really fun, but. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the only downside for us who are in bands is that there's a much more of a preference for, you know, the spinning records and and doing you know electronic music because you watch the clubs like you go through hollywood and you see lines and lines and lines and then any of the clubs you know a couple of them still exist like the whiskey and things where they still have bands but it's not that every night it's not that big you know want to be there want to be part of the scene and that was a big thing in the 60s too is that we had you know what we call the scene you know and if you just hung on the sunset strip you were part of the scene you were cool you know yeah. you went to canner's delicatessen at four in the morning and you saw the doors and the mothers of invention and all the other bands of that time period all there and you know the next the next generation and the next generation they were all there they you yeah. know, got their booths and they got their names on and it was it was you know you were cool because you were part of the scene and you could go and play a club and it didn't matter that they never heard of you it's like they discovered you there and which was great you know yeah. now there's like no you got to sell x amount of tickets you know, or we're gonna let you in the door but it's a lot cheaper to do electronic music and have one guy you know comes in brings one guy and makes and does hundreds it. of songs yeah and what yeah. I find more interesting is when people can mix like an instrumental with electronic. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. obviously like Lindsey Sterling or something like mm -hmm. Brass Tracks. That I'm gonna give some pitch to some bands out here right now, <laughs> which is like a trumpet band, like a, a trumpeteer, a drummer, and he mixes beats. I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. that I can get behind because you're taking what is going on right now, but you're also still using music mm -hmm. and it's still like engaging. It's not the same beats that everyone else is doing. Yeah, yeah. and I think with That's yours, cool. it's just it's fun. Like you have it. You're a performer. You are not just a musician. Like I think, especially today, you have to be a musician and a performer. 
Yeah, I would. I would think so. But I'm always surprised when people say, "I've never seen that before." And I said, "Well, I came out of an era of show bands. You know, James Brown was one of my heroes. Watching this guy move and do what he did, and of course Mick Jagger and Roger Daltrey from the Who. And it sort of was like, if you were in a band, you better be a front man. You better (laughs) have a reason for being up there other than just standing there singing. The few that." you know, didn't do that was like Jim Morrison, you know, but he would suddenly go into some sort of strange fit, you know, and everybody go, whoa, and get crazy. But he had such a sensuality up there and the way he sang and he was so messed up. I mean, my conversations with Jim, I, I <laughs> trying to follow, you know. Jim. Oh, I gosh. don't know where we're at in this conversation. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. So Are we still talking cool. about this? I... Yeah, still in the 60s here. Yeah. yeah. Rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What was that like opening for the doors? I mean, were they big yet or were they? No, that's the thing that was sort of interesting there. When we first actually played with them, we did... I don't know if they still have Battle of the Bands, you know, where bands all come. I'm sure it still exists. I just haven't seen it in a while, yeah. But that was the idea is, you you know, you get a bunch of unknown bands together and you let the audience kind of judge, you know. Mm -hmm. We were on the same bill with The Doors and they won the Battle of the Bands because they were certainly more together than we were. But we came in second, you know, and it was like this sort of like, oh, they got an album. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, there was, you know, there was always that sort of jealousy and I like the seeds who everybody like was shocked that they became so legendary because at the time they were just sort of like the poor imitation of everything else but mm-hmm. their music and rightfully so is a particular sound that was yeah. also part of part of the strip but we all worshiped at the altar of the English rock you know yeah. all, mm-hmm. if, if it was if it had a British accent we were there yep. you know <laughs> and uh, anybody who was coming from San Francisco LA it's like well yeah okay they're cool New York yeah but yeah it was it was that British wave that really you know captured all of us at that time inspired everyone when did the band kind of dissolve for the moment oh, when, okay. when, how did that happen we there were everybody and i think it's still the case now if one band falls apart you join another band or some people have three or four bands that they play just so they can keep playing and i've seen times where i'll go to a club and the you know the guys are all interchangeable for the bands there might be a different lead singer and basically you know we reached a point the band that everybody started to take another thing or one guy's parents said no more band you're going to UCLA you're going to study you're going to be a lawyer which eventually happened so he was taken out and then probably about six months later he formed another band you know it was that (laughs) (laughs) but eventually he you know he dropped out some of the guys you know continued with different bands continued doing music over the years it was kind of that we had to start giving up the dream around 69 because Altamont happened and the Stones and the fact that somebody got killed at a Stones concert here in Los Angeles Charles Manson yeah, mm-hmm. that was like I would go to restaurants and not get served. Cars would drive up and go, you know, hey hippie, and spit at me. Oh, you know, it was weird. You were suddenly, you were suddenly now not belonging to society. You were mm-hmm. considered bad just because of the particular look you had. And then our idols were all dying in that t- time period. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison. I mean, I can go on and on. You know, in the yeah. cursed age of mm-hmm. twenty-seven, of which. Our band, Sloss, we have a song called 27, which we do a kind of a laundry list of everybody all the way up to, you know, Amy Winehouse. And that was like a really overwhelming reality that maybe it's all 
falling apart and it's mm. getting very commercialized. Record companies are taking over and the yeah. bands now, instead of you know getting paid and keeping the money, it's like, no, you got to pay for the sessions, and which I guess you know still happens. The whole so, music industry is, is yeah, in whole an interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a whole other show. You yeah, know, yeah. You know, <laughs> mental Gosh. illness in the you know music and, industry. And music. <laughs> in my desire to be a more unique performer. I, when I was performing, I was trying to act out stuff in the, in the bridge of the music you know, in, during the instrumental parts. And somebody said, did you ever study mime? I didn't even know what the word meant. And, and finally I figured out, it's like, oh, like Charlie Chaplin, because my dad used to show me Chaplin movies. So it's like pantomime. Okay, I get it. And I found a teacher here in Los Angeles that worked with for about six months. And he made me realize I had a natural talent for this and writing sketches, which... You know, I wrote songs. I never wrote physical comedy. Yeah. And then, the, you know, the famous mime, Marcel Marceau, came to Los Angeles. I met him. I kind of showed him sort of the kinds of things that I did. And he says, well, why don't you come to Paris? I'm opening a school. <laughs> so I was 20 and yeah. going, okay, and left my girlfriend, left the parents, left the band, and just, wow, you just yeah. went. Just for, went. You know. wow. And I couldn't explain it. You know, yeah. some, what are you going to do with it? I don't know. I, I think it'll be good for the band. I don't know. Well, the band had well moved on and split up. And, you know, so I didn't quite know what I was going to do with the time I was over in, in Paris. Lost my girlfriend. I had to find something to do with this skill that I had when I came back. But the time in Paris was unbelievable. I mean, it was like that perfect age, you know, that college age. How long were you there for? A year. A year. And, uh, and it's probably like a conservatory type of setting of. Um, it was yeah. Art. You'd go, you know, you'd take the you know the metro to school, which of course was you saw all these people that you could study and you know and for for a kid from Culver City, you know, just seeing the faces and the the history of the of the city and things, and then classes in of course pantomime, but also Commedia dell'arte. The you know, I love Commedia dell'arte. Yeah. And uh, fencing and acrobatics and ballet and modern dance. So your day was filled with all this physical stuff. And then I would get on the metro in the late afternoon and then go to Marcel Marceau's teacher, Etienne de Cru, who taught you how to break the body down into you know, different parts so that you could almost like a language so you could speak without words using your body you know which i'm sure is interesting because having done music Mm -hmm. that's a completely different language it's Mm -hmm. you know you it's yes and no instruments and there's still staccata you know and there's still things that flow and have a musicality Mm -hmm. you try you reach for that if you watch marcel marceau's work you know there's a definite musicality especially in his earlier work you know as you get older it gets i mean i don't know how many shows he did but got a little Mm -hmm. looser as the years went on but still he could captivate an audience you know without a single word up there so i came back with this gift and craft and didn't know what to do with it so started on street corners and had no money just whatever i made in the hat was how i ate that night yeah so Mm -hmm. it literally was like starting from the bottom like i wasn't homeless i still had an apartment but i had to pay for that too but those days again that was like the epitome of starving artists right there. Yes. Yeah. Wow. wow. But in, in retrospect, it's like I wouldn't trade any of those days. I'm also one of those people. It's like, if you could go back and do this and this different, you know, would you? And I go, no, because at the time I was sure that was the right choice. I couldn't explain it, but it was the right choice. And I see, again, talking about mentality, you know, if you live in those regrets, I could have, I should have, you know, you're the, the star of the football team in high school and you're at the bar every night going, you should have seen me. 
when they're back in the day, you know, and you're living in the past. Yeah. And I get a lot, of, you know, I do conventions, I talk about the films and things that I do, but I'm constantly going, I want to do something now. I want yeah. to be relevant Live now. Live in the present. Yeah. And I love all the things that I did. I love that people, I saw your Friday the 13th, it changed my life. And I go, a Friday the 13th changed your life? Yep. And it's like, how? Well, my, my, my dad just died and, and my mom took me and there was something about Jason and I could feel his anger and it, it just, you know, I went back again and again and it really got me through that time. And I went, yeah. changed your life. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Was your, you directed the sixth. I did part six, yeah. Part six of Friday the 13th. My, my job was to bring Jason back from the dead and the only way I knew how to do that was with lightning. You know, because yeah. that's what worked for Frankenstein. Frankenstein, it works for Frankenstein. Why can't it work for Jason? Yeah. So yeah. a franchise that was dying because part five, it wasn't even Jason and the fans were You mad. literally had to revitalize. You really had literally had to bring the whole thing, thing back again. to life. Yeah. yeah. And they're going to do part 13 as soon as they figure out who gets what money you know because mm-hmm. you know, it's now become a financial thing it was a period where the starving was like i wasn't starving starving i just wasn't eating very well <laughs> my choices yeah. just like in paris i i ate oatmeal and carrots mm-hmm. i don't know why but that was it and that's an interesting felt, choice yeah Combination. <laughs> uh, occasionally would steal eyes. a piece of fruit you know? mine is uh i bagel sandwiches I just mm-hmm. have bagel sandwiches. Like if I if I'm if I'm struggling financially, it's basically just a toasted bagel with eggs mm-hmm. and cheese. Yeah. And that's that's my, my dinner and lunch. Yeah. I mean it's food as fuel yeah. in a way. You know, because that's I'm still in that. I'll still unfortunately stop at a seven eleven, get something that's somewhat healthy, and then eat and drive. I don't want to take the time to sit down in a restaurant and have them take care of me and use up that time when I could be getting to some other either creative endeavor or someplace like school or whatever, you know, that I'm supposed to be doing. So that, that mentality came in at that time that it was just keep going, keep doing things. I kind of wanted to get into that because you mentioned the the Peter Pan syndrome and such Mm -hmm. like that is, I kind of, I wanted to discuss with you, it it sounds to me like you're very much, you're still in the zone of just, I want to keep doing things and keep going. Do you think that has anything to do with your upbringing? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, the big thing that happened in my childhood at 11 my mother had a mental breakdown. I mean, a complete mm-hmm. became somebody else. And for an 11-year-old, being the oldest and being very close to my mother and watching this progression as she slipped further and further away into some other world and into some other persona and wasn't sleeping, which had a lot to do with the psychosis mm-hmm. and stuff. You just get you know upset and so much adrenaline that you just can't sleep and mm-hmm. came home from school and they had taken her away and they put her in basically the equivalent of what you see in Cuckoo's Nest. The Norwalk Metropolitan Hospital, strapped down, rats, other people just absolutely violent and things. So, I mean, you're in this screaming, awful thing. And we'd go visit every weekend. And for me, it was the beginning of seeing people in a whole different way in that they were free to kind of walk around and be with your relatives and things. But somebody come up to me and say, you know, hello, what's your name? I said, well, Tommy. Well, I'm William Shakespeare. Have you read any of my work? And uh, I think I've heard of you. Oh, you, you need to read my work. You know, people were like completely committed to whatever it was that they needed yeah. to Put on as, yeah. as, as, as a safeguard, as a shield. My mother was just like, they did electroshock, they did all the things that they did in those days that were just really the wrong choices. Mm-hmm. And eventually they, you know, they decide, decided to give her Thorazine, which just completely vegged her out. So through a lot of my teenage days, I know I basically had kind of a zombie mom. She, she tried to do the best she could, but you know, the heaviness of that 
that particular drug. And it wasn't until I think probably like the late 60s that lithium and some of these other things came in, which was a better balance for her and she was able to operate a little more. But still, the whole thing of being sort of the, the mother of the house and things and all the the kids who I ended up, my dad ended up raising during those years, it was tough because what do I know about mothering, you know? Yeah. And my father, same thing. He was a performer and he had a job that he hated and he had become alcoholic early on but then stopped during this period because it was just too much that he yeah. could handle. But then once she got well again, then he went back to it. So, you know, there was so much alcoholism in my past. Maybe it's the Irish Catholic DNA, it's there, and you can't kind of get around it. But I grew up with a a great hatred of it because a lot of my childhood was taken away with concerns about my dad and the loss of my mother in that And you actually kind of take on a parental role. Yeah, you do. You, You know, you try to be the caretaker. And I noticed as I was growing up, I ended up being the leader of the band or the leader of the club. And I didn't particularly want that responsibility, but I would be the person that would just sit there quietly and listen to everybody and then go, what if we do this? And I go, oh, great, then you should do this. You should leave this. You know, okay, and, and yeah, so, I guess. I dang. guess I mentioned it. <laughs> you know, and so I, I, I don't mind that. And lots of times I take on way more than I'm capable of I know doing. that feeling. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, I think we can all relate to that one. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's like I think of that thing of wanting to please, of mm-hmm. wanting to take care of people, of yeah. wanting to be kind, letting people get in front of you in the car, you know, as opposed to it's my lane, I'm driving, you know, it's like a lot of those things, I think I just sort of naturally learned. Growing up Catholic, there was a lot of guilt that comes into it. You know, I think there's a term to that. (laughs) It's not, it's on the tip of my tongue. (laughs) But I mean, you know, it's it's, it's also the the Italians and the Jewish and, you know, everybody deals with that religious guilt and Mm -hmm. we all have to kind of figure out, all right, what is it that somebody's doing to me to make me feel guilty so they can get what they want? And then how much of it is genuine that you got to have a heart, you know, deal with it. So all that pain and then the excitement of the show business was yin and yang. It was great when it was happening. It was really depressing when it wasn't. And one thing I learned from my dad more than anything, and I talk about this all the time, and I literally preach it from the stage, is don't give up your dreams. Because the people who let that go and say, you know what, I got to raise a family. I got to do this. Forget that part of my life. Yeah, I love making miniature boats, but I got no time for that. There's going to be a point where you start making miniature boats and God willing, you sell them on eBay and God willing, you make money and you go, my God, I've wanted to do this my whole life. And finally, I'm doing I don't care what the dream is writing, you know, something creative, just a handyman. There are people that just are great around the house and go out there and put yourself on the web and people go, God, you're a nice guy and you charge not too much. And, you know, it's like, yeah, I love doing this. So there's all these dreams that people should not give up on. And jumping ahead to the, to the band thing, I mean, that was something that I let go of in 69, 70, you know, for this pursuit of mine. And suddenly, for reasons that are completely <laughs> strange and weird is the song, the one song that was recorded back in 65 was discovered and it became sort of a cult song, you know, cult classic mm. in the 80s and the band knew nothing about it but then suddenly it sold on eBay for over $6,000 wow. and then we heard about it and yeah. so that was sort of the thing that kind of said let's get back together. I had not sung in 46 years, didn't even sing at church. I mean, just didn't want to have anything to do with singing, much less performing. This this is the period I was a filmmaker. So it was a strange thing. But as soon as I started doing it, it was like, this is what I've wanted to do as a 
kid, as a teenager. Absolutely. And then putting in the magic, again, it was part of my past. Putting in the mime, another part. So this act now is kind of a composite of all those different decades. That's amazing. Did, yeah. It feels like you needed the time to do each of those things I in guess your past so. so that you can do it all within one combined thing now. Yeah. And that's, that's beautiful. fortunate. I mean, that's that, that doesn't necessarily happen to everybody. No. And a guy did a book on my life about three years ago, yeah. I guess it was, <laughs> called A Strange Idea of Entertainment, and, <laughs> it, which is a line from my movie. But yeah. it, he, I said, why do you want to do a book on me? He said, I don't know anybody that's had all these diverse careers and yet now is sort of putting them all together in a way that is so unusual. And also, mm-hmm. you know, I did like 42 films, and all the films are representative of periods of my life when I was raising teenagers and relationship issues and then big issues like global warming and AIDS and uh, abuse and alcoholism and mental illness. You know, I've done a lot of stuff with characters who were not diagnosed properly and they ended up hurting other people's kids. Mm -hmm. And I look at that as all of us, you know, we're somebody's kid. You got that connection because of your mother and how she was treated. There's a great empathy. Did a piece where... Half the cast were, were Down syndrome people and or some that just had incredible you know, mental difficulties. But we put them in and had them play basically themselves. Don't yeah. worry about the lines. Let's just make the scenes work. Mm-hmm. And you put them in with a, an actor like Donald Sutherland who was in the piece. Gosh. Suddenly, they just magic happened. And you just felt so <laughs> wonderful that yeah. you were able to do that for these people. And again, I have so, such a empathy for that whole situation. So that wow. kind of helped. All of those things that you mentioned, it, it is because the last 60 years have been a crazy 60 years in American history. You know, you, you do. You have the AIDS epidemic. And then, you know, back in the 50s, you had right after the war, you had the war before that. Yeah. And, you know, you had Vietnam and Korea and then global warming is a big thing, a big thing yeah. now and different eras I feel like will define yeah. the 2010s probably by and each of those things I feel like each of those decades almost you, you pursued a different kind of career path in each of those yeah. decades uh, do you think that the the history that was happening around you influenced any of those decisions that you made artistically I think subconsciously less mm-hmm. than consciously because mm-hmm. I I got sort of depressed after I did the book because I never looked backwards. I was always looking forwards. It's like mm-hmm. I put blinders on because if it worked, great, keep going. If it didn't work, remember what didn't work, keep going. You know. And suddenly I'm sitting there and, and Joe Madre, who did the book, he looked at everything I ever directed, anything I was involved with, and he put together all these questions and he ended up building chapters of this period of my... and finding stuff that I didn't know I did. I kept using a red Mustang in a number of movies. Wow. And he goes, what's with, with the red Mustang? And I go, I don't know. I, did, I took a red Mustang to the Monterey Pop Festival where I saw Hendrix and saw Janice and saw, I said, that's what it is. I oh, didn't realize wow. it. So there was a, almost moment. a subconscious motif yeah. in some of your movies that you didn't even know yeah. were there. That's and then there's the supernatural ones where for years, every time I looked at my watch, it was 3.33. Maybe other people have a similar thing, but for me, it was like there was a, real sort of unsettling thing and of course I immediately jumped onto okay I'm going to die at 333 that's got to be you know it's it's the only thing that makes sense that it has that kind of effect on me and so I even talked about it on some director's commentary on some of my movies like well there you see the clock again you know Andy Garcia looks at the clock it's 333 or this guy (gasps) yeah so I'm down (laughs) in New Zealand making a movie I got a call at 
in the middle of the night, I picked up the phone and as I, it was my brother. And as I turned, he said, mom died. And I looked at the clock and it went three, three, three. And I, oh, I, I just God. started to shake. And yeah. he goes, I know it's, I go, it is. I, how, you know, I started asking all the questions, but that moment of that's what it was, that relationship with my mother. I mean, so we're into a whole nother territory now, which we can certainly talk about because <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about, you know, what's beyond news, weather and sports out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, I would love to actually, the one that I feel like uh, people would be easily identifiable as Friday the 13th. Did that, mm-hmm. did any of that supernatural stuff kind of influence the decisions that you made in that movie? That, that one was actually, you know, I did a number of things as an actor. I was in a lot of monster suits and robot suits and <laughs> Disney's The Black Hole and all these strange, you know, movies from the 80s, basically. I did one movie that was, the first one was called One Dark Night, which was about a girl having to spend a night in a mausoleum. And that came off of going down in the catacombs in Paris and seeing what that felt like to have a candle and wall-to-wall skulls and bones. <laughs> so off of that impulse, that's where I wrote that the movie. That claustrophobia would kill yeah. me. <laughs> so then I dragged around the film cans for a couple of years until finally I was offered a Friday the 13th. And I had no desire to do a slasher movie. Mm-hmm. I know I saw Halloween. I thought it was great. There was hardly any blood in it, but it was scary. It was suspenseful. It had a huge influence on me, as did The Exorcist for okay. a whole other reason. <laughs> yeah. I was offered this thing and I said, you know, I really want to do a comedy. And they go, well, this isn't a comedy. And I go, but could I make the characters likable? And could I have kind of a sense of humor? And he goes, well, you're not going to make fun of Jason. He's like, no, no, no. And I was like, okay. And so they let me have total control in that regard. So I was doing sort of a satire of the genre as I was making the movie, which gave it to me a freedom for me that I could put in the humor that I loved, still do the kills, but make them supernatural, unimitatable. There's nothing in there that Jason did that a human can do. You know, it's yeah. all bigger than life stuff. And I thought the fans were going to kill me. Thought that we you, took it off. You and, thought that you ruined the franchise, kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah. the guy before me, unfortunately, had kind of ruined the franchise. So we didn't have the opening that we were hoping. People were like, "Oh no, it's going to be you know Jason's uncle," because it was like somebody's ambulance driver, I think, yeah. instead of Jason in part five. Mm-hmm. So my job was to say he's back and he's going to be back and never thought it would spawn another six sequels but the influence on that was more just my love of horror movies my love of universal horror movies borrowing from frankenstein borrowing from gothic horror so it's one of my favorite genres is is classic horror i I love horror too i just feel like horror is a little bit it it feels very franchise now it feels Mm -hmm. very mainstream i can point to the exorcist is an amazing example i personally also really liked the first paranormal activity just because i felt like Mm -hmm. it did something different yeah it wasn't so much a slasher it felt like they relished in the horror of nothing yeah that i i thought was very unique yeah i really admired that you know, they yeah did something new and on when blair witch i mean i i wasn't as big a fan because i heard way too much hype before i saw it mm-hmm. but what they were doing was groundbreaking very smart and that found footage became a genre in and of itself absolutely yeah you had cleverfield you had yeah. normal activity next yeah. thing you know it's everywhere yeah yeah absolutely so i think uh, the one thing though that i i really like about the way that you go about filmmaking, and I still remember this to this day when I was in class with you on the first class, mm-hmm. is no matter what kind of film you're making, and even with you with horror, is you want to know where the love is. Yeah. You you always had that point. Like you, you do a lot of dark, crazy, cool things, but you always kind of keep that center point yeah. of where is the love. And I really like, where did you get that kind of hold that center? Um, it's funny because, you know, I, I 
got my love of show business, obviously, from my dad, but I think I got what love was from my mother because she, all the years that she was alive, you know, she never not called and let me know that she loved me to the point of like, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. I've heard this already. <laughs> yeah, but it, it was that sense of that she had to express that. That was so important. So as I started doing my work and I started being around other like directors I really admired, like Frank Capra, who kind of became my mentor. And I started realizing that if you want to like somebody, there's got to be some identification and there's something about them that you kind of love. Or, you know, Hannibal Lecter, we loved how he relished in his evil. And I mean, it's like at the end, people were happy he walked away. And it's like, that's really strange. But it's like, again, he, Anthony found how to do that strange character in a way that had such delight that you loved him. You loved yeah. what he was doing with that dark character. He's such an amazing character. Yeah. <laughs> so I just made that kind of my mantra is that if I'm doing a Friday the 13th or I'm doing a Hallmark movie where everything is love and sweet and nothing never really goes wrong, there's still those elements have to be there that the human is, and as a humanist, humanitist, Humanitarian? Yeah, that could be a word. Humanitarian? Humanitarian. That's it. (laughs) A humanitarian is you you want to say that even if it's corrupt, there was love there. You know, if somebody Mm -hmm. is doing something wrong, it's because something went wrong for them. When I started finding out about, you know, abuse and things that, that people were doing to somebody else, and then you find out that's what happened to them and that's what happened to their father or whatever... This stuff gets passed down and it's like they know it's wrong. They know they hated it when it happened to them and yet it's like this is what I'm supposed to be. Getting involved with Al-Anon later in life too and hearing people come up with these stories, not just about alcoholic people around them, but literally about just all these abusive and mental illness issues and things and how people keep choosing the same bad choice because they feel that's what they deserved. And it's like, that's so wrong. But it's like, that's what made them feel somewhat comfortable. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, yeah, he beats me, but he loves me. And I mean, it's like, oh, my God, you know. And that's the I think that's the beauty and the ugliness of of humanity almost is. And I think the the amazingness, the, the amazing things that you can write and create is humans are so full of contradictions. You know, we hate violence, but we also use violence sometimes to show love or, you know, and, and things like that. And I think we're we're so full of just multitudes of of contradictions and we're we're three-dimensional characters we're not always good we're not always bad you know and and i think when i went through acting school at uh, uc santa barbara i think one of the biggest things for me was that everyone thinks that they're the hero of their own story yeah Mm -hmm. you know and i I, not many villains in real life or in well-written stories are doing a bad thing know they're doing a bad thing and are relishing in that bad thing. They, Some there's are. something badly written, <laughs> uh, or you know, I, I mean, well, there's a rationalization. Yeah, there's a rationalization. Like, you know, yeah. it's like you, you know, you don't deserve to live because of the, what you've done. Exactly. You know? And now I'm, I'm leaving out what you did to me. You hurt my feelings, but it's like you, you're not going to do this to anybody else. Yeah. And I've I've seen uh, that with yeah. people, and they will sleep well at night. Absolutely. I, I always yeah. believe that you know, once you did something bad, you laid there, you know, every night going, I can't go to sleep. What I, you know, no, nope. but, but you, they, you rest- it. Yeah, Absolutely. and that that whole thing of you have of, a conscience. Yeah, 
I don't know. It, I, I guess it's it's a sociopath kind of thinking, you know, where mm-hmm. you can be completely removed from it. Mm-hmm. You can pass a lie detector test. Did you kill your wife? Nope. It just sits there. You know, it's like, yeah. how, you know, they did. I you think know? And I've are... done stories about people like that mm-hmm. that have done these incredibly yeah. chilling. And uh, I did a, a piece on the DC sniper. And I don't know if you guys are too young for... Uh, I've heard of it. Yeah, I've been I mean, too much he, he and this, this young boy terrorized... The, you know the world. I mean, mainly that our nation, but it even was going on in London and Paris, because they thought it was a terrorist ring, and it was a disgruntled ex-soldier who felt like he needed to get his, you know, kill his wife, and oh, he needed to, needed to kill people around her, so it looked like it was a serial killer. And suddenly, the story took off that this was some sort of terrorist act because it was like in a white van and all these things and he did it at gas stations so people were afraid to pump gas and wouldn't get out of their cars i mean he put such a fear in this nation and he he was not doing it for any other reason initially except to try to get his wife and and do it in what he thought it was a clever thing but the heart of the whole thing is he basically took under his wing this 17 year old boy who didn't have a father figure and he taught oh, this boy how gosh. to shoot from the back of a car, you know, wow. across eight lanes That's of traffic true. to nail one shot into people. And you mm-hmm. go, well, how the hell could he do that? And then I figured out in the making of it, because we actually made the movie six months after they got arrested, that they had walkie-talkies. And he would watch where the traffic was and then tell him now, and, and he would line it up. And, I mean, it was just awful, awful, terrifying yeah. stuff. But I went at it by going... How could he do this? He wanted to please his dad. He wanted to please this mm-hmm. guy. And this guy would not feed him, do things to him to make sure he did what he was supposed to do. Yeah. And he just had this... He didn't have the resources for help to actually process his emotions yeah. that he was going through. Instead, he had to process them through a kind of really terrible way. Yeah, yeah and it was a, a terrible filter. filter. He, he yeah. didn't know necessarily what was good and bad. He only knew based off of these decisions, yeah. which... You know, it brings up an interesting kind of what is good and what is bad. You know, I mean, something can be definitely like objectively bad, but you know, this this kid didn't really know that. You know, he didn't know no. what was good and what's bad. No. no, he didn't. He needed somebody to guide him. He had no, you know, male figure in his life, mm-hmm. and it was like the it was the perfect storm at his age. This guy didn't intend this to be this big thing, but then once he got all this attention, then he started asking for you know big amounts of money and you know wow, to, to I can make a career out of this. Oh yeah, Gosh. you know. So it, it was a it was a strange episode in the you know American culture and kind of somewhat forgotten about because it seems like each week we have something new uh, you know that we have to yeah. confront and deal with and it does create kind of an apathy I would think with a lot of people it's like oh that this week you know oh, let's watch Saturday Night Live see how they make fun of it okay great let's move on what's next week yeah and it just kind of numbs us in a sad way and we used to go to the movies for that emotional connection and I get so frustrated because I'll go now and I people aren't laughing aren't screaming, jumping out of their seats like they did in the 70s and 80s when I was going to movies all the time and making movies. It just all kind of like, it's like you're kind of at home. And if they didn't tell you to turn off your texts, people wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I remember when I saw Blair Witch, I didn't, I couldn't watch the movie for all the phones that were going on. And the people said, yeah, I'm watching it and now this is happening, you know. So that was before there was that mandatory don't do that. But it's a different generation. It's there's good things that are going to come out of this. We didn't know where the 60s thing was going to go. It sort of disappeared, and 
they're still old hippies trying to keep it alive. <laughs> but for you, how do you feel now, like getting back into the band, into what you're making and creating? What, what does it feel like now versus then? How do you feel you can make an impact with it? Well, it's been a bunch of, you know, we sort of kind of drifted over all the, the filmmaking yeah. period. But yeah, once I started making features, then that led to TV movies and cable movies. And so then I was making three movies a year. And it would go on, be seen by millions of people on Sunday night, Monday morning, gone, forgotten about, unless they made a VHS or DVD out of them. And a lot do survive. I think about 20 of them, actually, you know, you can get on DVD. But I just sort of continued to just let whatever job that came my way, I would get a script and go, I don't know this subject at all. What do you, you know, or this is a woman's movie. Why are you giving it to me? And it's like, well, we think we, you can do it. And we think you can do it in 18 days, you know. Oh, okay. So like, all right. Okay. So then I had to do my research. I had to learn the internet. I had to get on Facebook if I was doing teens. I had to get my mind into it. And there was a whole new discovery that started happening. It wasn't me just going, well, this is the way it is, kids. No, it's like, how is it? Just reverse that. Tell me, teach me, you know, and that thing of being a student. And I really believe something that Chaplin once said, Charlie Chaplin, that, you know, we're, we're, we're all students. We don't live long enough to be anything else. Yeah, And it's, it's it, yeah, I mean, and there's a loss for that whole respect of age and things. It's like, you know, how old are you? I'm not going to listen to you. You can't you know? do that. Yeah. And not as much now as there was for a number of years, mm-hmm. but it's still in terms of the Asian cultures, where the older you are, the more respected you are. Mm-hmm. I was in Korea with a film group from Chapman uh, two years ago, and when the students would introduce themselves, they would introduce, they'd give you their name and their age. And it basically was telling you, okay, he's 18, I'm 19, he's got to listen to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's built in. And so our students were going, uh, I'm Carrie and I'm 17, you know. <laughs> Is that the right answer? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, it, and of course, obviously, our world doesn't ever think that way. But yeah. there still was holding on to that. You should know more. Yeah. That maturity is, is what you want to be able to look at as a, as a blessing, not as, God, it was so much more fun when I was dropping acid and smoking weed. And, you know, mm-hmm. it might have been more fun, but you were not getting anywhere in the world. And yeah. if that's not important to you, well, then there's something else that's going on there. Well, that is interesting because it's it's true. I mean, you, you know, an 18-year-old and a 19-year-old, this entire episode have talked about all of the things that you've done that you couldn't even do in 18 years, yeah. you know? And in order for you to take all of those things that you've done throughout your whole life and then bring them back and put it into your act now, yeah. uh, that's something that an 18 and 19-year-old, a 30-year-old couldn't even do because they haven't had any of yeah. those experiences. Yeah. And we're in a society right now where it's just like, now, 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 now. If I don't do it by 25, if I don't do it by 30, I'm done. I don't yeah. got it anymore. And that's such a terrible way to look at it because first off, I mean, yes, you can accomplish great things by then, but to say you that's when your life ends, that's when you can't do any more or you're not going to be able to achieve even greater things after that is a really sad way to look at it. It is, but it's not uncommon. I mean, we, our generation in the 60s, when you became 30, you're gone. You're Gosh. out of it. We don't want to hear anything that you got to say. You know, it was wow. like that, that was the end of being cool and youthful. Oh, not terrible. that way. That, you know, Please that don't keeps... tell me that. Please don't <laughs> so tell me that. And yeah. for me, it was 26, you know, yeah. because Orson Welles did Citizen Kane and he mm-hmm. acted and he did all this stuff. And I think Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel at 26. So I wow. put that out there to torture the crap out of me. But then when I went past the age and I still hadn't directed my first film and things, I had to go, so you quit? 
nope, I got to keep going. And it wasn't until I was 31 that I finally have that happen. And then it was like, okay, well, I'm more together to do this. But still, I look at that. I would love to remake that if I could, because all these things that I know now, I didn't know then. But to answer your your question, Kara, it's like constantly rediscovering things and being excited on that like a magic trick. It's like, I never expected the band to come back. I was doing films. When the films became lifetime films, television for women, I was going, why am I still doing this? Well, because it's making an impact on certain people. Mm -hmm. And then when that sort of all fell apart, then it was like, I was sort of left in this weird place. And then on a personal end, you know, my kids had grown up. They had left the nest. My wife and I, you know, were looking at each other. Where are we? Because we were like big kids. And now we're like, we had to be parents. And now we're like, what are we? And the relationship starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of floundering what I was going to do. And it was hard to get the next job. I really kind of broke down mentally on the last movie that I did because I didn't want to do the script. I couldn't identify with it. Mm-hmm. It was all important to me to be able to wake up every morning and go, this, is, this means something. It means something to yeah. me and it'll mean something to somebody else. These, these were hollow scripts. And I was convinced by an agent, a manager, the wife, kids, everybody that you love making movies. Just go in there and make it your own. And I, I couldn't. It wasn't the, the, the way the producer had set up the thing. I, I couldn't change it. So I just like went into a depression that lasted about a year. And getting out of that was like very tough because a lot of other personal things happened. Lost a niece to an overdose and many things that were like, what's going on? And I didn't have that to run to. The movies were great to run to because you had three months of just one thing you had to do is make this movie work. Go, 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 go. So all of that started to kind of put me in this strange abyss where am I and then that's when the the band kind of came out of nowhere do you think that kind of helped your depression oh yeah I mean I was already basically kind of got myself out of it (laughs) the the big turning point too which again it's gonna sound strange but this is me I turned 60 and when I turned 60 was also like 30 years or so since I had done my first movie so my kids and my wife decided to have a a party at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery mm-hmm. for me and That's invited so all these people. And it was like me going, well, this is my moment of getting this award, this thank you. And it's like, am I over? Is that it? I've done oh, the no. book. I've done, you know. And then I did the most bizarre thing that a lot of people, including my ex-wife, thought was I bought, I started making payments on a crypt at the Hollywood Forever in the mausoleum where I made that movie. And people said, why? And I said, because I want to see what the end looks like. And guess what? I've got 40 years to get there. So I've got a whole another half a life to do that. Yeah. But that sits there, and I'm cool with that. It'll be great. It'll be comforting. I'll be where I made my first movie. I'm surrounded by Rudolph Valentino and all these other great, you know, wow. Hollywood yeah. actors yeah. and rock and rollers, the Ramones. I mean, you know, and, and, and now I go to movies there, and the projection them on the wall, that mausoleum, and I'm going, I'm happy with this. This is fine. But... It's not like I'm going to sit and wait to die. I have no interest in that. That's so great. it put a, a, it didn't put like a clock on me as much as because I I don't know if I'm going to make it to 100. That's my plan, and beyond. Yeah. But it's sort of giving me this license to be able to just keep creating. That I mm-hmm. don't have to let. You don't have to you worry know, about age. what's going to happen. You just got to just keep going. Keep going and see what happens. I mean, the band will have moments where it's like play the Hollywood Palladium and it's like open, you know, for Joan Jett next day. Now what? Well, I don't know. We should, uh, somebody we should call and tell, 
<laughs> you know, you don't know what to do with this. So you go, well, we got to go on and do something else and keep going with it. The teaching has been a great renaissance for me yeah. too, because I I love to see what you guys come up with. You know, what do you got? What's cool to you? And it can be a mishmash of things. I teach them a book now called Artist Steel. And it's like giving license to like, this is all the great art, all the great composers. Everybody had a mentor that they took from. And then once they learned that, then their own personal thing started to take over. And it was theirs, you know. And there's no shame in saying... I took that from Steven Spielberg's E.T. And mm-hmm. it's like, and that's what looked really cool to me. he did that too. Yeah. Absolutely. The yeah, yeah. There's nothing Spielberg did that you can't see David Lean having done and all of his heroes. Scorsese's very open about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the Hawks shot. That's a Ford shot. That's a, the, mm-hmm. So he educated us as we enjoyed the movies, you know, that he was doing. Mm-hmm. So my feeling was like embrace where you're, your influences and say, yeah, that they make me excited. They inspired me. Standing now on I the shoulders of giants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, so that's kind of where continuing with the band, obviously continuing with, with teaching. And then, so it's like, you know, performance and that. And I'm writing the script again. So once I got awesome. kind of past all the craziness of the divorce and all the things that happened. Life goes on. Freed, yeah, mm. it freed me up. My latest piece of madness is going back to my mime roots. Yes. <laughs> paying respect to Michael Myers from Halloween. Yes, please tell us about that. Yeah, that came about literally six months ago. I was at a horror convention signing autographs for my Friday the 13th and my Stephen King movie and stuff. And I was looking at some guy that was standing there in a, as the shape, as the Michael Myers character in the overalls and the, and the white mask. Mm-hmm. And somebody was trying to talk to him, and he didn't know what to do. And I went, you know, as a mime, I know exactly how to mime this thing. <laughs> and then a light bulb went on, and I thought, Mike the Mime. Michael Myers, the Michael Myers experience. So all these old sketches and then things that I've always had in the back of my head all kind of came together. So I started doing a full-on, like an actor, study of Michael Myers' character, his walks, his move, and put like a comedy series of sketches together to be done either clubs or horror conventions or whatever. And it's a ball. You know, it is so physically taxing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I take this mask off and about a half a gallon of water yes. comes out with it. <laughs> but, you know, it's sort of like a 68-year-old man is not supposed to be doing this. It's like, why not? You know, if you're enjoying it, if it's fun, if people are laughing. And that was a big thing for me, too. Is the band's great, and it's great to be cool and be in a band, but I miss making people laugh. Aww. And this takes me back to that. So I don't know what's going to happen. I didn't know six months ago this was going to happen, and this has become really a big part of my life to... Put so that out because I know exactly what the Mike Myers walk is, <laughs> yeah. and you know more so than pretty much any other slasher. I know exactly what Mike Myers looks like and mm-hmm. how he walks, and you know even even like how he stabs people. Like it's yep. you know you know how he works. And so, yeah, that, you know I have him do things like if he's on his cell phone and somebody bumps him and it makes his cell phone <laughs> crash. And he looks and, and he calls the person over and says, "Look what you did." And then he goes, you know, he gives the finger and says me you're saying that to me you know and then there's like a beat and suddenly his knife comes out of nowhere and i grab and i'm then i'm doing this and people are like going crazy because there's nothing there yeah except the the rubber knife that i'm using and from there mike realizes that you know he didn't do that as good as he used to do so he goes to a gym to get in shape and then of course the joke is the shape you know so i mean i'm sort of feeding on the fans love and then also me introducing a generation to 
you know, this classic old pantomime that I learned from Marcel Marceau. That's great. Where can we see this? Or is well, it it's on YouTube, YouTube under the Michael, Mike, the Michael Myers experience with <laughs> Mike the Mime. Getting on websites, you know, for websites and stuff because they, you know, call a guy called up and he said, I literally wet my pants. <laughs> and I went, that's the best review that, I've ever that's gotten. That's great. I just have that so. on your website. There we go. You mentioned this uh, kind of in passing, but have you ever been told, like, because of your age, you can't do this anymore? And... Yeah, it's Well, they don't say it directly. It's like mm-hmm. you turn in scripts and things and it's like, who is this person? Mm-hmm. And it's somehow like, you know, it, it just kind of comes with the territory everybody's looking for the new hot thing. It's why it's such a blessing when you come out of film school. They want to hear what you got to say, whether they're going to hire you because the person above them is going, well, how do we know they could deliver it? We'll go, we'll give them a great DP. We'll give them great sound. We'll do, you know, mm-hmm. you know, but the script and what they want to do with it sounds really interesting. And you've got to just luck out, get the right person. My first movie was because a bunch of Mormons had to lose a million dollars in some sort of investment and they chose this movie that I was oh going to do. But there are those people out there that do that. I mean, these crowdfunding things are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had somebody approach me that if I could be part of their, because they want to make a Friday the 13th type homage, you know, but use the real characters and things and actors. It's like, it's going to be hard to get away with that. But if you can, sure, I'll be happy to help in any way I can. Mm-hmm. And they're raising money just based on the fact that they're fans and they want to see this movie happen. That's fantastic. And that's new. I mean, that never happened before. No. You had to get, you know, dentists or Mormons or <laughs> bankers <laughs> or somebody. Mormons. Someone yes. had the money. <laughs> but, uh, but now folks are going, hey, you know, yeah, I'll give you 10 bucks for that. Mm-hmm. You know, you get enough 10 bucks, it adds up. Yeah. It really does. But, what advice do you have for people who are afraid that it's either too late to do their dreams or that they're going to run out of time before they get to do their dreams. I I mean, I sort of stand there as proof. If somebody was telling me that, I would go, yeah, how do you know? And when I stand on stage and hold up the album, vinyl album, (laughs) and and, and everybody thinks vinyl's very cool, which I was shocked because we were so happy to get away from scratchy vinyl back in the day. And now it's so cool. But now it's so cool. And I go, you know, 50 years ago, I wanted this. I really thought that would make my life great, and I never got it. Now it's really great because it was sort of like a dream you never expected to get. You didn't necessarily give it up, but it's like, how is that going to happen? didn't make sense, but somehow the universe, the forces came together, and some energy occurred, whatever one's belief is, allowed that to happen. So basically I've had a 19 year old come up and say I was so influenced by what you did I'm so inspired because the things are just not going well and I go you're 19 he goes I know and then I realized you know what for him it's as bad as anybody that's 80 and going through it doesn't matter you're going through this thing of I'm, I'm not getting what I want how do you do that part of it is survival and part of it is just not letting go of this thing that you really love you know so at the end of the day it's like well I didn't get any closer but I survived the day tomorrow and all the cliches come into play about how to keep going I mean cliches become cliches because you know (laughs) exactly because they're true I mean on certain levels you have to accept those Mm -hmm. that reality yeah I feel like especially people I'm sure this is true with most generations but the reason why we report on these people like the Justin Bieber's who got famous at you know 17 years old or whatever 16 years old and report on the Taylor Swift's and all of these is because they aren't normal someone may becoming famous at 15 years old or 16 years old is it's a lot, though, it, too. Like they, 
they've never learned how to handle that. Well, that's true. So we're constantly comparing ourselves to 15, 16 year olds because it's all over the news and things yeah. like that. And I think we definitely need to step back and, you know, realize that we don't have to compare ourselves to people who mm-hmm. made it at 15 or 16 or even 25 or 26 because that's not the normal. Most people don't yeah. make it yeah. at 15 or 16. That just happens to be what's all on the news. Yeah. You know, taking, like you said, taking it day by day and going and accumulating that knowledge and not giving up is the biggest one yeah. you know not giving up and not feeling like your life is over when you become 30 years old and you know you've seen the justin bieber's and the taylor swift's and all of you know selena gomez is all getting famous and yeah. it's like yeah i may be older than them but that doesn't mean that my time just like you said yeah. the they're looking for the next biggest thing the next biggest thing doesn't have to be a 15 year old it doesn't have to be an 18 year old yeah. the next biggest thing could be a 60 year old a 70 year old an 80 year old someone who hasn't been discovered yet yeah. you know the next best thing doesn't mean that it has to be the next big young thing <laughs> it's it's only it's only going to go away after a short amount of time mm-hmm. it's it's the andy warhol you know 15 minutes of fame and it's great when it's happening and for people that don't have anything happening it's frustrating mm-hmm. you know it's like well, yeah. how did that work for them you know and then there's people that just once they get it they they kick into a work mode that they've learned coming up so they're prepared for all the disappointment that's going to yeah. come with it because if you start getting disappointment after you've been way up there, like Elvis, yeah. you just start to self-destruct. Absolutely, there's nothing that seems to make you happy. Relevant thing, uh, especially in the music industry right now, is someone like Eminem. I'm really big into hip hop culture too, but yeah. you know he's been on top of the world before. You yeah, know, he was. He still is the best-selling, you know, solo hip hop artist of all time, and it's getting to the point where people are comparing his past so much so that he can't ever get out of the shadow of himself, himself. basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's fighting and fighting and fighting to get to that. And instead of kind of relishing with what his his past was and where he can go in the future, it's a little bit more of just kind of reclaim that old glory. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just I human think nature. Really, for you, sure. just, you gotta, like you said, put on your blinders and really focus on what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And if you're seeing other people succeeding, be like, great for them. If they can do it, I can do it as long as I'm passionate and I put in yeah. the effort for it. And the time will be the time when it's right. You don't got to rush through your life or rush through your dreams. Absolutely. Well, there are people, I mean, you know, as now a film teacher, there are people that sort of pop and are special. You know, you, Cameron, was one of those people. Oh, thank you. You, you know, there was something about the light in your eyes, and I thought, she's going to go someplace, and oh, she's sincere, and she's... I sure hope so. And when you see that, you, you just hope that there's just nothing going to collide with that that's going to discourage you, but at the same time... You've got to build up scar tissue, yep. you know, and oh, yeah. still keep the soft and sentimental thing inside there, but you've got to let that stuff bang you off of you. you got to build a strong foundation. Yeah, it, it's just, it's crucial because people are out there, to, and they, again, go back to love. They feel like, how can I be loved or, you know, I'm not anybody. And then they, they torture themselves over that, and then they see somebody being successful and they trash them. And, of course, with the internet now, you, you can, can trash bring anybody down all you want. anybody, oh, yeah. you know, anybody. Absolutely. And you don't know what's true and what isn't anymore, mm-hmm. and that puts it into a whole other category too and I like working with actors I, what I'm trying to do now is say look there isn't one truth well, I'll take a one page scene you know we have those books and, mm-hmm. and give 20 people a chance to do something with it because it has no there's no direction in there it's just mm-hmm. the dialogue and you see 20 different completely different scenarios woman woman male woman kid doctor whatever they chose to do with it and I go was any of this untruthful no, mm-hmm. it was all truthful, but just a different version of the truth. 
that's where it gets crazy with people saying, well, I want to do what's absolutely honest and truthful. It's like, if you can believe it, it'll be truthful. And you have to just totally believe it. Absolutely. There was something that I read a a few days ago that I thought was relevant to this, but it's that, you know, stop comparing yourself to what you think is beautiful. Flowers are beautiful and so are Christmas lights Mm -hmm. and they're completely different. Yeah. And so it's, you can be beautiful, but that doesn't mean that you have to be the exact same thing as the other thing. And it's the same with being truthful and having, yeah, exactly. It's you pursue what you're passionate about. And I promise you that that's the most truthful thing you'll make. And people are attracted to that truthfulness. Somebody once said, you know, do what you do when you're procrastinating (laughs) and you'll be happy. Oh gosh. So what is that? I mean, looking at YouTube videos, Mm-hmm. Is it diddling on writing something? Is it, what is it? And I get ADD about the, trying to do so many things at once mm-hmm. and get none of them done. Mm-hmm. You know, but at the moment I'm doing something that I'm really loving, it's like I'm wasting my time. No, I'm influencing me because mm-hmm. the, all of these things you end up taking with you. And I, I met Ray Bradbury, you know, the great science fiction writer oh, years ago. My personal heroes. He said to me, and I guess it was what he said to a lot of people, he said, you know, all the, st- all the stuff that you collect, all the trivia that you build up in your mind, all the stuff that you love about Star Trek or whatever, all of that stuff you will end up using in some capacity. So don't throw it away. Don't make it like this is nothing. That's who you are. That's what you love. That's who you are. You just have to find a place where they allow you to do that. That's beautiful. And then it's not work. It's yeah. absolute joy. And again, mm-hmm. that all of those things that, that gather up, come more with age too yeah. you know it's just the older you get the more of those that random trivia that you have the more of that procrastinating yeah. the more and we don't we don't feel as rushed anymore i think there's yeah. gonna be a point where we feel like we have the time to we're not in a hurry to get everything done and not do it the way we really actually want to mm-hmm. that's been part of my project it's like i want to do this right so yeah. let's let's yeah. do it correctly and do it effectively yeah, absolutely it's um, hard to put the brakes on when you're passionate you yeah know? I mean, i've had to do that with a few things it's really really hard and <laughs> especially I, at our age being yeah. in the mid-20s where it's like all right so now i have to start thinking about kid, when do i want to have kids when oh, do i want to get married how am i going to pay off these student loans <laughs> how am i going to achieve all my dreams and afford them and yeah. how am i going to make money and how am i going to live a life without feeling like I've accomplished. But you no. you are a sole purpose of, I look at you, Tom, and I'm so thankful that you are a mentor to me. Oh, it is it's what pushes me to keep going, and I'm so inspired and so thankful that you came on today. To yes, talk thank you so much. I enjoyed so, so much talking with you guys. It's yeah. great, and your your take on all this is just wonderful. Thank and you. it's great tea, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, it's sweater really... weather. Let's, let's get that fun Yeah, we again. actually, we ran out, and I all of us were oh, looking good. at our cups like, well, I guess I could make another batch. To remind everybody, this is from Tea Spectral. You can get this at teaspectral.com. The uh, one that we are drinking today is sweater weather, and yeah. it is a perfect kind of uh, seasonal. It's got pumpkin in it, and it's really good. I believe this one's decaf, I think. I think so. Actually, yeah. yeah it. Yeah, this I is think the so. decaf one. Double check. We'll double check on that, but there are decaf <laughs> teas coming as well, so that'll be great. Our code is MENTAL. Use that for 10% off and to support us. Woo! But yes. Yeah. If, if you want to plug what you're doing again? Yeah, just go on YouTube, pretty much. Uh, if you catch up with my madness, just put, you know, my name in there, and up will come, you know, the, I think, the which is it's only a week old the mike myers thing yeah. mm-hmm. so that's very fresh and see where that's going to go and i didn't talk about it for six months because i realized if i start talking about it i won't do it you know and that's been go, my problem when i talk too much about it yeah. don't do it and, you know and it <laughs> kills me project? not to talk about it you yeah. know it, it kills me to have sketches that i want to put on the internet right now but i'm going just wait just 
parcel this out. Is it going to make a you difference? Know, I don't know, but my instinct tells me I got to do it that way rather than shoot the whole thing out and then mm -hmm. go, okay, now what? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's that pacing yourself like an athlete. You have to yeah. you know kind of build in that. But yeah, the the band keeps going. The, the Sloss. We're going to hear our stuff on iTunes and Spotify yeah. and got our own station on Pandora. <laughs> That's Sloss. amazing. I was just talking to my roommate about like yeah, I still use Pandora and yeah. it's cool. It allows you to expand your horizons. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely check out their music. They are—I don't know what, what to call it, like rock and roll, grunge, punk. Like, what is? Yeah, it's kind of all the. I mean, we really were rock and roll. I mean, mm -hmm. and because it's rhythm and blues, yeah, that's what and I that figured, to me, yeah. that's you know very different. And kind of what the Ramones and a lot of bands kind of merged out of that sort of hard rock thing. Yeah. And so did punk. Just you know, kind of classic rock is a little more melodic and stuff. Which we're getting a little more into that mm -hmm. now. I mean, we started by saying, okay, it's not. 1966 and now we've got to pick up and where we just left off and we just did the songs that we did on the Sunset Strip yeah. we basically said here's what a set looked like from a band at that time and then we started writing our own that were variations of the stuff that we were inspired by, you know, now it's gotten more and more unique. Yeah. I don't know if we'll totally lose our audience as a result. <laughs> it's like, wait, do the garage rock. We missed that. But I don't know. But you've got to well, you gotta, you yeah. gotta, you try. You've yeah, got you to go for it and you've got to put it out there. And I'm yeah. really excited to see what you guys create more. I love seeing your shows and hearing your music is phenomenal. So thank you so much thank for you. coming on again. So, yeah. Zach. And you can find me on Instagram, Facebook at EPSEC, E-P-S-E-C-H. And I'm Camera. You can find me at Camouflage, C-A-M-A-R-A-F-L-A-G-E on Instagram. And yeah. You've gotten really good at that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it just flies off the tongue. But in follow mentality at Mentality Talk, at Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. And please follow our podcast. Email us if you like. Same thing with Gmail. And we're just really excited to have you guys listening. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you again thank for you. This, being on this the podcast. This has been amazing. It's been a, a great conversation. I think thank we you. talked on a lot of topics. They're great. So. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.